tuned into Geek Elite Radio. Good luck. The future comes, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall miss no game, withhold no news, report all rumors. I shall wear no jerseys and plead allegiance to no side. I shall live and die on my webpage. I am the word in the darkness. I am the watcher of the TV. I am the megaphone that informs the realms of geek. I pledge my hands and name to the Geek's Watch. For the geeks and all the geeks to come. Yes, we are the Geeks Watch, and we are here to shed light on the news that is rocking the geekdom this week. Um, We are also going to be talking this week about the Fantastic Four. Now, a lot of people have seen the 1994 Fantastic Four movie, John. Uh, I'm not one of them up until this point, until we watched it this week. And I have to say... It's going to be an interesting talk when we get to it, uh, but we're also going to be talking about the soon-to-come-out Doomed documentary that is about the 1994 Fantastic Four movie. Uh, we got to see it early. We were sent a screener, and this shed a lot of light on it for me, too, so uh, I can't wait to get to that. What about yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm a sucker for behind-the-scenes uh, info and documentaries, and this was a treat. <laughs> Definitely was a treat. Uh, but before we get to that, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk some geek news. So, wh- what do you have up on the, the the plate today? Well, uh, another one of my favorite genres is uh, bad shark movies, and it looks like Cliff Curtis from Fear the Walking Dead is going to be joining Jason Statham's giant shark movie titled Meg. Now, Meg is short for Megalodon, which is a prehistoric shark. (sighs) Basically looks just like a normal great white shark you would see today, except it's like five times bigger. Basically, it could swallow you whole. And um, I'm hoping it's... um, one of those action movies where Jason Statham punches it to death. <laughs> well, you know he's he's a he, he's a martial artist, so you got to expect a, a kick in there too. <laughs> Definitely, maybe dual wield some axes, maybe, and, uh, and drive a car into it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's you know this coming from the 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 actor who says that he would never do a superhero movie or a comic book movie, I should say. Because he says the, he says that anybody could be in a comic book movie, even his grandma, and that's like almost an, an exact quote from his uh, his interview. This is from a while back. He said, uh, you know, basically they get a stuntman in there, and the, the he- superhero is always wearing a mask, so it, the actual actor doesn't have to be doesn't have to be uh, uh, there to do the the fight scenes, and he likes to do his own fight scenes. But yeah, now he's doing a, a megalodon movie. That's like a sci-fi channel saturday night movie i mean i know i get i get the that sharknado movies 
you know, are so popular because they're so absurd, but why Jason Statham? I, I love Jason Statham. I'll watch just about any movie with him in it. I don't know if I'll watch this, though. Um, yeah, he's probably just suffering from typecasting as, you know, the action guy. And what do you do when you've done, you know, everything from Transporter to the Expendables? It's like, well, and now you got to jump into shark territory, I guess. You know, there are a few movies, though, that he he's done. I mean, look look at Snatch. I mean, that's probably the uh, that and Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels are the movies that brought him onto the scene. He doesn't do any fighting in those. He he he, he can do some comedic uh, roles and some dramatic roles. Uh, there's uh, Revolver, I believe is the name of the movie, which is pretty good, and he, he's not fighting anybody in that. Uh, the Bank Job. I think there's like one scene where he beats up a person. The rest is him actually trying to figure out how to pull the bank job off. But like I watched the I watched Spy because he was in that. You know I, I like to <laughs> I liked and that movie is terrible. And I like uh, you know his action movies. It's I, I look forward to him. Homefront is one of my favorite, which was weird to have like him go up against James Franco. I was like, as soon as I was watching that, I was like, well, James Franco is just gonna get his ass kicked. I mean, uh, but yeah, this is, I mean, I, I get it. You know, I mean, if you don't want to just be known as the, the Kung Fu kick em up guy, but play to your strengths. <laughs> yeah. I'm still waiting for crank three. Cause I think it's the perfect series to end on a high note trilogy type thing. You know, his comedic action, I think would definitely be his strength. But um, I don't know. I mean, this this Meg movie is also based on a book, I believe. It's like a series of books, I think. Um, so it's meant to be treated kind of seriously. You know, it's it a, shouldn't be the schlock fest that you'd find on. It's a giant yeah. shark. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, how many actual serious movies are are there that are about a giant shark? I mean. We were talking about Deep Blue, Blue Sea earlier, and that's not a giant shark. It's two. It's two intelligent sharks, but still, <laughs> it's like it was still schlocky. I mean, look, Lake Placid. I mean, that's not a shark. It's a giant alligator. But well, if they do it, and this is so cliche, but if they <laughs> do it the uh, the Jaws way, which is you don't really see the shark, you you just kind of have a lot of talking about it and what's going to have to happen to take care of it then i mean you might be okay but then now you're kind of treading in jaws waters which you know i feel dangerously close to making bad puns in that sense but <laughs> man um, the one the one foil to my argument jaws i mean yeah when the first jaws came out it was great because it was a thriller and like you said they didn't show the shark until the last what quarter of the movie they didn't show Jaws, so it has all this, th- you know, suspense to build up. But then you have, I want to say, three sequels to that movie that don't do nearly as well. Oh, they get progressively worse each <laughs> iteration. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, if if you make this movie and you're trying to go for a Jaws feel, then that's all that anybody's going to say. It's going to be like, well, this is just a weak knockoff of Jaws. That is definitely a danger, and not to get too far off topic, but I just had to throw in since we finally worked Jaws into the conversation. Uh, did you know that for Jaws 4, the novelization implies 
that the reason why the sharks have a vendetta against that particular family, uh, I forget Roy Schneider's character's name. Isn't it but, Brody? Uh, Brody, yes, the Brodies. Um, the reason why that whole family gets killed off by sharks is because uh, the first shark, when it dies, leaves such a, a hatred for this particular family that some kind of spirit because, like, basically takes over um, another <laughs> shark. And it just basically decides to, to, to like, end the bloodline of the Brodies. Which is why, in, by the time you get to Jaws 4, um, you get the last of the Brody children killed, like, in the first five minutes of the movie. And the only cast member returning is the wife, whatever her name was. And she goes to the Bahamas, <laughs> and the shark actually follows her from Maine, or wherever they are. Yep. Like Martha's Vineyard or something. All the way down to the Bahamas, just specifically to exact revenge on her, because it's being controlled by some kind of ancient spirit. So basically, they took the episode of the Brady Bunch go to Hawaii, and Greg Brady steals the Tiki Idol, and and he and, and the spirits follow him around. That's what they decided to go with in the whole Jaws I, series. Hey, I I smell crossover. <laughs> now, do you do you think that by Jason Statham agreeing to do this movie, he's essentially? literally jumping the shark <laughs> i wouldn't doubt that there's not going to be a scene where he has to jump a boat or something over a <laughs> shark at the megalodon at some point so when that happens everybody in the theater can be like just stand up cheer and walk right out doesn't matter if the movie is over or not <laughs> that's the point where you can walk out yeah and you know your money you can leave the funny thing is like you know the director will know that he's putting it in the movie but like i could see that jason statham doesn't know the term jumping the shark so he wouldn't get it and then it just kind of be would be a big joke and i could just see the internet exploding with it yeah now i should also point out rain wilson is also in this movie of course he is why wouldn't he be He's going to be the comic relief, for sure. Because, <laughs> you know, just add Dwight to any action movie and you have gold. <laughs> He's going to say something like, fat, sharks don't <laughs> sleep, or something. <laughs> and I hope you just have uh, John Krasinski just show up at some point and be like, what is better, a grizzly bear <laughs> or a... Megalodon. <laughs> and then dead pants to the camera, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this movie's not set for release until March 2nd, 2018. Wow. So do you think a lot of that's going to be post-production, like getting the CGI and probably building the shark puppets or something? I'm guessing so. I'm hoping so. Those where they should really take their time to craft it. Cause <laughs> it's probably just going to be a really well polished trick. <laughs> uh, 
all right. Well, that's enough bashing that movie that we have nothing we have nothing to go on about. So uh, I'm gonna. Hey, I'll be the first to admit it if I'm wrong and it actually rocks. Oh yeah, like, I yeah, will too. That was awesome. <laughs> I'll go back to this uh, very podcast and be like, we sat here and bashed it, but guess what? That was one of the best movies I ever saw. <laughs> uh, but let's move on. Uh, I want to talk about Wolverine three. And all this discussion that's going back and forth between James Mangold, the de- director of Wolverine 3, and Brian Singer, the director of the other X-Men movies, plus the producer on Wolverine 3. Now, I guess on the on the commentary, the audio commentary for uh, X-Men Apocalypse, Brian Singer goes on to say that Mr. Sinister is going to be the villain in Wolverine 3. Uh, after that came out, James Mangold goes on the on Twitter to be like, uh, who is Mr. Sinister? Sounds kind of corny. Please advise. And from that point on, you know, uh, fans are just confused and don't know, you know, who to go by because you got the producer saying one thing, the producer and the writer, because uh, Simon Kingburn was also on the commentary, I guess, agreeing with uh, Singer. And actually one fan... Uh, or he, James Mangold actually tweeted to one fan also in a response to this whole thing saying, I hear uh, Mr. Sinister's in my movie going going back to the cutting room floor to look for him. You know, once again implying that he isn't in his movie. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to, to think, but I, 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 I know the end of uh, X-Men Apocalypse has the whole Essex Corp uh, you know, ta- teaser at the end of the movie. So that means that Sinister is supposed to show up in an X Men movie at some point, whether it be X- Wolverine or the next X Men movie. Uh, but no one says anything else a- after that. I mean, how do you feel about this whole thing? Well, I think they're playing it kind of coy. I mean, it's not the first time a filmmaker has denied that someone is playing someone or is going to be in their movie and just flat out lied. Um, however, I I could see them going the route of simply just not naming the character Mr. Sinister, but being the same character. It would just be like uh, Nathan Essex? Yeah, something like that. Like, I mean, we'll know who he's supposed to be, or at least the comic fans will know, and the comic fans will let the non-fans know who it's supposed to be. Right. But they probably just won't call him Mr. Sinister because, I mean, if you're trying to make a serious movie but you have a character named something like that. I mean, uh, even Magneto's original name was like Eric Magnus, wasn't it? Uh, one one it. of his names. Eric Lencher, Eric Magnus. Uh, there's He has a few names. And I was like, how coincidental that his last name happened to sound like what his power is as well, you know? Like, and that's that's just a throwback to how comics used to be written. You know, exactly. They weren't really given the greatest respect. Right. Well, I attention. mean, that's what I, I remember I tweeted once is like, people, when you're naming your kids, please take into account that you're not forming a new villain because it seems like uh, that's what happens, you know? Like, uh, you know, Victor Freeze becomes Mr. Freeze. <laughs> yeah. stuff like that but edward enigma's like first initial and last name yeah just happens to be <laughs> enigma thing riddler kind yeah. of thing. yeah i get i get you uh so, yeah. i also think it's interesting because uh 
it's heavily rumored, nothing's been confirmed yet, that the Wolverine 3 is going to be based off of Old Man Logan. At least I don't believe anything's confirmed yet. I know you, we, they've showed photos of uh, Hugh Jackman looking like Old Man Logan from the comic book. And in that particular comic book, I don't know if you've, you've ever gotten around to reading that or not, uh, in the very end, you find out the villain is... Uh, well, I mean, not the very end. Basically, when you, when you get to the the kind of the end of the journey with him and Hawkeye it's uh with the red skull is kind of a big reveal that he's the the big baddie that's in charge of the whole country now obviously they can't use the red skull because that's a marvel uh studios property name or whatever you want to call it so having a reveal that it's mr sinister at the end would be a would be the the i guess equivalent it's the pretty much the only x-men baddie they haven't used yet so Right. Um, well, slight correction to that. The, the Red Skull is the the leader of the East Coast of the former United States. Yeah. I believe the U.S. was split up into five factions. Right, but it's split up that way because the Red Skull allows it to happen. He's the one that's... Oh, so he was like the overall guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, At least that's how I remember it. Fair enough. Yeah, because it's uh, it's what the, the the Red Skull has the East Coast, the Hulks have the like the Midwest or something like that. And no, they have like the California area. Is like that what is that where he was West at? West Coast. Was it the West yeah, Coast? Yeah, it, it was basically a cross country trip because remember they have to go through like Vegas, um, which I think was Kingpin territory, and then um, the Midwest where they had like the the Venom creatures, and I think that's where Emma Frost was located. Uh and then they get to uh, eventually to the to uh, the East Coast just barely and get betrayed. And it was a good story. Yeah, I did read it a while back. Um, yeah, that, it has been a while since that came out. Now, it, it thought it was awesome. However, yeah, like I honestly wish they wouldn't do Old Man Logan as a live action movie if they couldn't get the rights to all the characters, even the ones that are dead. I mean, you have Thor's hammer kind of just laying there and people praying to it, hoping somebody will be worthy again someday. Right. And that, I mean, that doesn't even feature Thor, but because of rights, they can't even use Mjolnir. You know what I mean? Like That's very true. Uh, yeah. That, that once the scene where, you know, the, there keeps, they're talking about going to uh hammerfall where the, the city where this, you know, something is, is supposed to be and they get there and you just see, you know, the hammer just sitting there on the ground and no one's worthy enough to pick it up and people are worshiping it so that they so someone would be worthy and basically come save them and it's just a very cool scene to look at, you know, a very cool uh splash page. And and you're right, it's unfortunate that you wouldn't be able to do that. So I would rather them do like a Marvel animated movie where they can still do these, you know, uh like, you know, they did Wolverine and the Hulk in a in a movie in an animated movie, so they would be able to do Old Man Logan as an animated movie, no problem, I would assume. Yeah, and make it rated R so you could have it be just as gruesome as the, the story is, you know, and don't don't pull any punches, you know. And, and uh, the word I keep hearing is that um, Professor X is supposed to be in it as well. Right. And part of the thing, I mean, unless it's going to be some kind of flashback or some kind of like spiritual vision that he has during a hallucination, um, Wolverine is essentially one of the last few uh, X-Men left alive. Like, he's just that old that uh, 
And it's literally, but it's also literally because he killed all the mutants. He killed all that's the X Men. Which you yeah. know, that's the one thing in that story in that storyline that I always found weird. Because of all the mutants, the mutant enemies that they have in the in the X Men mythos that can control your mind or make you see things that are not there, it's it's Mysterio that actually gets him to kill all of his friends by making them look like villains. And it's like Mysterio. His illusions are all practical because he's a special effects guy. So it's just like smoke. It's literally smoke and mirrors. You would think Wolverine's other senses, like his sense of smell, would be able to tell him that something wasn't right. Like you, you could have you could have a, a Mesmero or the Purple Man. You know these kind of people confuse <laughs> the Hulk, or I mean Wolverine. But no, they went with Mysterio or, or uh, Mark Mark Millar. Mark Miller actually went. Is the one who wrote it, so he, and he went with uh, Mysterio, which I always thought was weird. It was like, this is your time to shine, Mysterio. <laughs> Show him what you got. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I like, and I know that, uh, yeah, I, I do remember us having a conversation about the whole uh, old man Logan before, because you came up with a, a great thing of how that I never, I never even put two and two together, but the uh, the fact that in the very end of it, he fights the Hulks. And it's kind of a what is it a uh, parallel because that's his first enemy in when in, when he was created was the Hulk he was he was created in the Hulk comic book to fight the Hulk. Oh right, yeah. So it would be his first and his last. Uh, you know, I I also I I also have very I'm very um, weary of the whole old man Logan part of this uh, movie because I think it's going to be a lot like. Uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine where you thought you were going to be getting Origin the comic book but really that's only the very beginning of the movie and after that it has nothing to do with that comic book anymore so I more Weapon X (laughs) yeah so like that's why I was just I kind of find like I kind of feel like that's just going to be like a it might just be a a little clip in the movie that you know uh, maybe even Xavier shows him like this is a possibility Logan or whatever you want to call him at that point, James. Oh man, wouldn't it be awesome if it was like the ending of the Twilight series, where the whole big thing was all just like in their heads? Wait, the Twilight series ends that way? Yeah, the um, I guess the the whole thing is culminating to like a huge battle between like good vampires and bad vampires, and like the werewolves join the the. The, the good vampires and stuff and like so like the two heads of the vampire clans I guess kind of meet up in the middle of the battlefield and like so this is how it's gonna go and then the battle starts and it's like this big action sequence like the earth splits apart uh, you know super powered vampire fighting is going on there's all kinds of deaths major characters get killed and then it cuts to yeah so that could happen if we fight so we probably should and uh you're like what the hell that's so funny because like you know that's kind of like a what is it a no-no in television movies now because of uh what was the show dallas that did that for a whole season they after the season was over the next season they they came back and it was like oh that whole last season was just a dream so like no one does that anymore because basically because of that show and it's just like a yeah, you know that's the easy way out, and you don't ever want to do that. And they and Twilight used that as their 
big culmination, like the ending of their of their shit. Basically, yeah. It was, uh, uh, all right, folks. That like, will be the. Um, this, this could have happened. That will be the last time we'll ever bring Twilight up on this podcast. I'm ashamed I even did it, but yeah, <laughs> I just had to point out the example there. I mean, I will. I won't shame anybody that that is into Twilight and they geek out about it because that's what the whole point of the podcast and Geekly Radio Network is: is that you can geek out about anything you want. I'm just saying. I'm never going to talk about Twilight ever again. <laughs> yeah, okay, John. <laughs> yeah, I, I got nowhere else to go with that now. <laughs> uh, what's your next story? Uh, oh, uh, one of my favorite childhood stories, A Wrinkle in Time, has cast its lead role. And um, this isn't the first time A Wrinkle in Time has been adapted. Uh but this will hopefully be a good version because the last one was like a made-for-TV movie that was kind of so far. Um, the actress uh, Storm Reed is going to be playing. Uh, oh, what was her name? Uh, I can't remember her name now. The, the actress's Meg, name. Meg. Yeah, Meg Murray, the main character, uh, kind of a dorky, nerdy girl is uh, being played by Storm Reed, who was previously in uh, 12 Years a Slave. Sounds like the kid of uh, Reed Richards and Sue Storm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I thought that was, I I thought when you said that, I thought that was the fictional character's name. I didn't know Storm Reed was the actress's name. (laughs) Yeah, it was, um, yeah, she's got an unusual name. Um, and uh, to round out the cast, it seems that uh, Mrs. Who, Mrs. Whatsit, and Mrs. Witch are going to be played by Mindy Kaling, Reese Witherspoon, and Oprah Winfrey, respectively. Not that at this point that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> now, those characters in the books are supposed to be like three elderly women, and um, they're referred to as witches by one of the characters because, you know, you know, when you're an old eccentric lady you know you kind of get called stuff like that or <laughs> crazy so, cat woman you know whatever so are they um, supposed to be like the the weir sisters from like uh macbeth not exactly they're they're essentially um well the story is very metaphysical that's one of the things i liked about it is that even though it was a kid's story it had some pretty big concepts in it um and essentially it those three uh, female characters are supposed to be uh, what we would have considered to be angels in more prehistoric times. It turns out they're just they're aliens, I suppose, um, but they're benevolent. And the whole point of the story is that there's like a huge looming evil in the universe, and there's you know. Anywhere there's life, there's always the the champions who fight against the darkness, and they actually make references to people like uh, Buddha and Jesus and Einstein as the kind of people that, through history, you know, are are, are given the task to fight back against that darkness in whatever way it presents itself, which is a really interesting concept. Like I said, you know, as a kid, this blew my mind. Um. There's the, the closest I could compare it to a movie, and even this does kind of falls short because it's just a small part of it, 
is like uh, the fifth element. Mm-hmm. How there's the that concentrated ball of evil in the universe that wants to destroy all life. That's essentially what's happening here. Hmm. Um, except that instead of trying to destroy all life, it just wants to have control over it. So, yeah, like you go to one planet. Uh, there's a lot of planetary travel, by the way. This was the first time I remember hearing the term Tesseract. As a matter of fact, this was the first time I ever saw the explanation of string theory that is essentially the same one that you see in, um, what was it, uh, Event Horizon and Interstellar? Interesting. Where you have like the two points in space and you bring them together. Right. Um, yeah, like the... I, I have to say, I mean, I, being as much into sci-fi as I am, I've never actually read uh, Wrinkle in Time, so I am... I will be interested in seeing this movie when it comes out, and hopefully it's done well. I mean, it looks like it's being made by Disney, who, you know, it can go either way with Disney sometimes. Yeah, Disney's live action can skew <laughs> quite dramatically. But uh, I think this one, it might have the... I mean, it, at the very least, they're going to have a budget. I believe the last one was more like a made-for-TV movie. Right. And, you know, that's so one thing ab- to... about Disney live-action movies. I mean, Disney proper, because, you know, you have Star Wars and the Marvel Studios and stuff like that, and those are going to make money. But, like, when you have John Carter and uh, the Lone Ranger, you know, they put a whole bunch of money into those movies, and, and essentially they flopped, but... Uh, they, uh, you know, it's, it could, it, they'll put money into, into stuff and, and Lord knows Disney has the money. They, <laughs> they yeah. have money that they can, uh, throw away. Yeah. Till the end of time. Now they, they'll keep making <laughs> big budget movies. I mean, when you have, you have the Star Wars franchise, Marvel, Marvel Studios franchise and, uh, Pixar, pretty much you, you have, you know, you're writing checks, right? I mean, those are just bank that's just money in the box right there for you so you can yeah they're you, essentially just printing their own cash yeah you can they can go and do uh jungle book which then you know jungle book was incredibly good the live action one so they you know that makes all kinds of money too you know i keep hearing that and i want to check it out now because jungle book is one of my least favorite disney animated movies i just find it kind of eh whatever but, uh, yeah, everybody keeps raving about how awesome it is, and I'm going to have to check it out. You know, I find it funny that they're they're kind of going – they're how they're going and they're making live-action versions of all these – all their, like, classic Disney movies. We had, we've already had, what, Cinderella, Jungle Book, uh, Sleeping Beauty, and they're working on Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid now. I mean, those are – that's just interesting strategy, which, you know, why not? It's making the money, too. I can't wait for the Aladdin one. Well, I have to say, the Aladdin. <laughs> That'd be pretty awesome, actually. Ooh, live-action Lion King. Um, the, uh, the one they did for Sleeping Beauty, which Maleficent? was from the point of view of the villain, right. yeah, that one was so odd. Um, I liked Angelina Jolie's portrayal of the character, but I thought the story was so just weird, you know, like making the three fairies complete idiots and changing the 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 the, the message of, you know, true love's kiss being from the prince to to her and making it so that 
the whole time she was actually in love with uh, Aurora. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> like, it just—I mean, I applaud it for being different. Don't get me wrong. Uh-huh. It, at least they can. that gave it a twist, but I was not expecting that. I'm like, this is this doesn't feel like it's a kids' movie. <laughs> You know, I I, didn't, I personally didn't watch it, um, but I have heard a lot of good talk about it. But uh, yeah, that is a, it is a strange way of going with it. And I think when they make these live action ones, they're still for kids, but it's also still a little bit more, you know, for older audiences too. Just because it, you have the live action feel, so it feels like you have to you have to put a little bit more into it. I think. I don't know, man. It was definitely very dark and creepy. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I actually, I, I felt bad for Charlto, Charlto Copley because uh-huh. he's in it right. as a pretty big character, and um, yeah, he plays such a scumbag of a character in this movie. And I'm like, this was not at all the 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 way that they did this in the original. Like, he plays the king. Right. Well, he plays Aurora's uh, dad. Sleeping, yeah, Aurora's dad, right? And, uh, yeah. And I was just kind of floored by... Well, I mean, I think that's the whole point, is when you have... You're, you're, you're trying to make Maleficent the anti-hero, I guess, of the movie. I don't know how, how else to put it. A sympathetic villain, maybe. Yeah, a sympathetic villain. You have to have someone that's a scumbag that... Is on the other side, and and thus his the you know the the king got the shaft. But uh, I, that's one thing I think I love about Charlotte Copley is that he's such a versatile actor. He can you know he can play a part where you really hate him, and he's a scumbag. Well, oh yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, he's a great char- uh, character actor. Um, just I don't know. I, I think it was just the writing. It was all over the place. Like they didn't really know the tone was just. I mean. It goes from extremely goofy to holy crap, that's dark. <laughs> so, um, hardly any space in between. Fair enough. Uh, just uh, something I want to mention real quick before we get on to uh, our last story and then uh, our subject. But there is, I was, I had tweeted earlier last week or this week and said. Uh, that I, I would love to see Jake Gyllenhaal in a Moon Knight movie, and I really thought that Antoine Fuqua, who's going to be the, you know, he's done a lot of movies, and soon uh, his Magnificent Seven will be on in theaters, should direct it. Um, and someone on Twitter just, I guess, saw my tweet and sent me a fan-made uh, teaser trailer for Moon Knight that he created using... Jake Gyllenhaal's footage from other things, and the trailer itself is just incredible. Like they, he goes through all these the different personalities of Moon Knight, that Mark Spector character, and you know, just you know, just really the whole storyline behind Moon Knight, and using footage from like Nightcrawler and Southpaw, and uh, uh, I forget what the name of the movie with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal where he has a twin that he kind of goes crazy about but it's it's a really great movie or great fan teaser fan trailer so anybody that hasn't watched it can go to our facebook and uh check it out there so this person created this based on your recommendation of jake gyllenhaal no I, I wouldn't say that they did it because i said jake gyllenhaal but they'd already done it so I, apparently other people out there really want jake gyllenhaal to play moon knight as much as i do uh. 
And uh, he just happened to see that I had tweeted that, so then he sent me the, the YouTube link to his fan-made trailer. Well, because if that's the case, I need to tweet, uh, Alexandra Daddario would make an excellent Power Girl. <laughs> and see what someone... I think that might be a little bit more difficult, because there's not too many... I don't think there's any footage of her being blonde. Not that that really makes a difference anymore, especially in the DC universe, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, they, they that's what CGI is for, I guess. Photoshop. <laughs> you know uh, what? I'll take a Photoshop picture. Just paste her face on, like, the comic book character. <laughs> and, and you got it. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, I think the last story I wanted to talk about was, uh, I know that you wanted to talk about it, too, was uh, Stan Lee. Fox buys the movie rights to his life, and which I think is incredibly funny that fox is the one that ends up buying it you know uh whether but the funny thing is that they want to make it into a 70s like action comedy flick like they want to make his it it, literally it says that it's think about kingsman and uh uh, roger moore era james bond movies that's what they want this movie to be like and it's just like what <laughs> the creator of just about every Marvel character you love is going to have a action comedy film about his life? Like the only thing that I could think this is going to be like is, uh, did you ever watch Confessions of a Dangerous Mind? The Chuck, uh, yeah, Sam Rockwell movie. Yeah, Sam Rockwell about the guy who created the Gong Show and the Newlywed Game and the Dating Game and. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah, I love Chuck that Barris. movie. Direct Chuck Chuck Barris. Thank you. Yeah, he uh, uh, it was what written or I don't know if it was written, but it was directed by uh, George Clooney, and I, I watch that movie just you know at least once a year. I, I go back to it because I think it's such a, a great movie. But uh, I don't know. I I think it'd be it's an interesting idea for Stan Lee. I mean, the I mean I know the guy did fight in World War Two and. You know, got put in charge of Timely Comics at a very young age, or at least worked for Timely Comics at a very young age, and then uh, goes on to be the editor, managing editor for Marvel eventually. But yeah, yeah. If they do set it in the seventies, I want to see a scene like he talks about in Mallrats, where him and Mick Jagger had a competition <laughs> to see who could get the most groupies. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we, I would definitely go for that scene, but I don't know if that's more of real life or just Kevin Smith's writing. <laughs> now, tying in slightly to what we're going to be talking about in, in just a little bit, wouldn't it be funny if Fox is only doing this so they can keep the rights to his life but not actually release it? Oh, that would be strange. <laughs> I was like, Art imitating life. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, the, that is a good segue into what we're going to be talking about. Unless you had some more you wanted to talk, talk about that particular topic. Yeah, just one last thing. Uh, I did have a recommendation. Not so much a news story. Um, as you know, and everybody that's listened here may remember, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And... Uh, everybody and their grandma has an opinion or a theory as to what's going to be happening in episode 8. <laughs> and I've come across a YouTube channel 
where there's a couple of really interesting videos that so far have the best theories as to who a couple of characters really are. Um, the first one is titled, Snoke is Mace Windu. Okay. Now, it's Ma- Mace Windu being the Samuel L. Jackson character from the prequels. Right. Um, it makes the case that he survived. And it presents a lot of evidence based on the media whereby Samuel L. Jackson has been on record several times now saying that he thinks Mace Windu survived the fall. Right. Because uh, in the movie he gets thrown out a window. Um, also, George Lucas apparently is down with the idea. He says, uh, yeah, you could survive. Why not? <laughs> Which is basically Lucas just... I mean, the, he, Lucas is a consummate troll to his fans. He knows how much people hated the, the prequels, and he just stopped giving a, a damn about it, I think. That's why one of the reasons he sold it to Disney. Right. Um, but yeah, they make a lot of really good points in there. And uh, some of my favorites is the, the fact that they, they keep... Uh, they, they put footage of Mace Windu fighting with his lightsaber side-by-side side with... Uh, Kylo Ren, and it looks like they're using essentially the same fighting style. And one of the things about the prequels and the new movies is that they pay really close attention to the fighting styles, because uh, as we talked about in our very first uh, podcast together, uh-huh. way back in the day, <laughs> um, yeah, there's they every character has a specific style for a specific reason. And in this case, Mace Windu used to have one... Um, that was uh, essentially a reflection of his character, who is someone who is straddles the line between light side and dark. So they make the case that, you know, being betrayed by the Jedi and being bit, almost beaten by a Sith makes him realize, oh, the Jedi are not stronger. It, it is the dark side. So he just goes full on dark side hmm. and trains Kylo Ren. And the other video makes the case that Rey is Palpatine's granddaughter, or at the very least, a blood relative of Palpatine, the Emperor. Okay. And again, also makes the case by showing her fighting style being very aggressive and very similar to the way that Palpatine fights in uh, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Let's just say, that's that's like the only one that you actually see the Emperor fight in, right? Episode 3. Does he fight in Episode 6? Uh, no, he does not. He just uses force lightning at that point. Right. Um, but the, he does have a couple of, uh, well, he has two, maybe three fights, depending on how you look at it. And in each one, he does this, this really interesting, like, aggressive plunging stabbing motion with the lightsaber. Mm Mm-hmm. Which he's the only character in in all of the movies so far that has ever done it, except for Ray, in Episode Seven. And uh, as we talked earlier, you were like, "Well, nope." It could be seen that Snoke taught Kylo Ren how to fight, but nobody taught Ray really. She just kind of learned how to defend herself, you know, with the staff. Right. Um, however, they also make references to the book. Because in the book, of course, you have a little bit more exposition. So the novelization and, of the movie? Of The Force Awakens? Right. Exactly. And it makes a reference to uh, her hearing a voice in her head that is basically telling her to do it. To kill Kylo while he's on the ground. And um, it, it kind of echoes the scene in um, 
in Revenge of the Sith when Palpatine is telling Anakin to kill Dooku. It was like, kill him. Do it. You know? And it, it, it doesn't specifically name the voice or give it any particular characteristics. It just describes it as amorphous and ghostly. Well, and also, but, as, as we've seen in, the, you know, the, the original trilogy, you, you have Obi-Wan after his death still influencing Luke. So why couldn't the force spirit of the Emperor be influencing uh, one of his uh, descendants, I guess? I, I mean, I can see that. Yeah. So, um, and there's been other fan theories about who's who. Like, I've heard that Snoke could be Boba Fett, or Snoke could be Darth Plagueis, which was uh, Emperor Palpatine's former master. Um, and even a really weird one that I'd never heard of before, um, a Celestial, which is very different from, like, the Marvel U Celestials. Uh, These okay. would actually just be, like, really ancient, um, like, Force-sensitive uh, beings that were practically immortal because of how powerful they were. Um, but uh, as far as um, using evidence from within the movies themselves and even what people say outside of the movies, like in the media, these two seem to be the, the, the best ones so far. And like I said, they, they use uh, you know footage and other sources to kind of link them together, and they're, they're pretty good. Uh, the name of the channel is Vincent Vendetta two words and those two seem to be the most recent videos now he also does have another video where he makes the case that Jar Jar was a uh, force sensitive and uh, closer to the dark side than the light okay now this kind of discredits me a little bit because I have to say he also kind of makes a good case for Jar Jar being a, a Sith or a dark sider um, which is stupid even saying out loud, <laughs> but that being the case, uh, the other two are still really well made at the very least, well edited fan theories where he puts all this info together and presents it in a convincing manner. And I, you know, I would, I would say that, um, uh, I'm not the most knowledgeable of star Wars lore mythos, whatever you want to call it. And I go to more knowledgeable people like yourself when I need uh, information about it. And in our first podcast, when we talked about this particular subject, when, uh, uh, you did inform me about, you know, the different fight styles that are, uh, are known in the star Wars universe. And, you know, yeah, they would definitely put a, I would hope, J.J. Abrams and whoever else would put a lot of thought into the fight styles that they used for Kylo Ren and uh, and Rey when when they actually when they actually do fight. I just find that the whole Mace Windu part of of the theory to to be really hard to swallow. Yes, he could have he could have survived the fall, but uh, to have him change character so much would is to me is very hard to believe, but not inconceivable i guess or you know un you know not not possible i guess <laughs> so uh it'd be interesting if that happens i think uh, i'm gonna just throw that out here now because you know this this episode eight is re they really want it to be to have that impact that uh episode five has the empire empire strikes back and you know have the big re have a big reveal that everybody goes oh kind of thing and I think it should just be uh, Padme. Snoke should be Padme. 
Like you thought she was dead, but nope. <laughs> oh man. I have that no I have awesome. no evidence to pack it up. I just say it's the wild card that you throw out there and all of a sudden bam <laughs> Natalie the the hologram disintegrates Natalie Portman sitting right there she's all disfigured and and all the uh, robot up just like Darth Vader was <laughs> you know what I, I can see it now Luke <laughs> I am your mother <laughs> yep exactly oh snap <laughs> all right I gotta write this guy he's like we got a new fan theory for you <laughs> make it happen so uh <laughs> There you go. Thanks for that. Yeah, everybody check out Vincent Vendetta. Is that what you said it was? Yes. Yeah, check that out on YouTube. Uh, check out his theories because, you know, theories are the great thing. You know, it's that's the whole part of geeking out. You figure out, you, you, you find the evidence to to put with your theory and and share it with the rest of the world and see who, who, who snaps it up, who goes along with it. Who's gullible? <laughs> All right, so that brings us to our movie of the week, our MCU that could have been. We are talking about the 1994 Fantastic Four movie. Had Now, I, I admitted earlier that I had never watched this movie before watching it for this. And uh, this actually was kind of the reason, this movie was kind of the reason we decided to do this whole series of the MCU that could have been, uh, basically because the doomed documentary was coming out and that's what's called doomed uh and it's in the same style of uh the death of superman lives what happened documentary where we talk about or we we talk about like i had anything to do with it where the documentary talks about what uh the kevin smith penned script of superman lives which then became Tim Burton vehicle, which he had rewritten, and then it goes through the whole process. Uh, John Schnepp, I believe, is the name of the documentary that goes through the whole process of of where where it was and how it died and what you know what happened to it. This time we have uh, all these actors coming back and a lot of the producers and the director coming back to talk about uh, what happened to this 1994 Fantastic Four movie, and you know one of the big things about that documentary is that a lot of the actors and a lot of the people involved are like, we thought this was a real thing. We thought we were actually, we were making a movie and what it sounds like is that the, the people higher up them from them, Roger Corman and uh, the producers at new horizons were actually just making the movie so that they can keep the rights. It never was intended to, to be released anywhere. Yeah, one of the um, the dark secrets of or the behind the scenes politics of how Hollywood works is uh, you pay for rights for certain properties. You know, if you don't own them. In this case, uh, this was at the time we should also mention uh, Marvel was in bad shape economically speaking. Yeah, the, um, in the nineties, the uh, just to elaborate on that, the nineties was a very hard time for for comic books in general because. Uh, there was a big boom in the late 80s of, of people wanting comic books. So then uh, the comic book companies, the big two, mostly DC and Marvel, decided to go crazy and create alternate covers and then foil covers. And they went nuts with just trying to saturate the market with stuff. And then all of a sudden no one was buying anything. So Marvel got hit really hard. 
and had to start selling off the right the the film rights to the, a lot of their IP, and this is why you have Sony owning uh, Spider Man and Fox owning Fantastic Four, and well, well they own X Men, I should say, and at the, you know for a while Hulk was owned by Universal. Uh, I forget what some of the other stuff is, but you know, everybody got sold. A lot of their IP got sold to uh, different companies just so that they could stay afloat. That's right. And, um, it, one of the ways that Hollywood movie rights work is, uh, a studio will have the rights for a set period of time. And if they don't do anything with it, then those rights revert back to the owner. Um, and this isn't anything new. This happens actually in several other businesses as well, even within the comic business, I believe. Uh, you know, you have to do certain things, otherwise the rights will revert back to the creators, which is something that the companies don't like to have happen because then they lose on that money or they have to pay the guys more money. Um, also, the you know a big a big thing about it is like if you uh, the the title Captain Marvel, both DC and and uh, Marvel have a character named Captain Marvel, and uh, for the longest time, you know, they would have to make a comic book that was titled Captain Marvel, or else, uh, you know, they would lose the the rights to that title. Like DC would would have. Then for the longest time, Marvel had killed off their their Captain Marvel, uh, Marvel, what have you. And uh, every every so many years, they would have to put out a comic book, even though the character was dead. They would have to put out a comic book that had to do something with Captain Marvel, or else they would lose the rights to that name. And that's when you get other characters that start to be named the same thing. So it's it like you were saying, it, it even happens in the comic book industry itself. Right. So, yeah, then you get to uh, Fox. No, it wasn't Fox at this point. I think it was New Horizons um, had the rights to Fantastic Four and uh, got Roger Corman involved in order to make a movie as fast as possible because the deadline was coming. I mean, at this point, they make a mention in the documentary that, um, you know, Punisher and Captain America had already come out and they were very lackluster, low budget, not great movies. And they wanted Fantastic Four to genuinely be like the first good Marvel movie. Uh, so everybody involved thought, wow, Fantastic Four, this is going to be great. We're going to do it right. And they rushed it into production. I believe they started casting in early November or December. Uh, December 2nd, I believe, was the date that one of the guys mentioned they had their first casting call. And I believe they started filming before the end of December, like right after Christmas. They mm-hmm. They had started shooting. Which is kind of unheard of. Like this is like super fast. Uh, yeah, the pre-production on it was guerrilla filmmaking was very, very, very quick. And you're right; they went to Roger Corman because, or Roger Corman's production company, because he's known to make these uh, kind of genre films. Like 70s and 80s had a lot of you, you could you can go back and look at a lot of Roger Corman films that are. Uh, I I don't know if you would call them Roadhouse films or not, but you know they're very. Uh, cheaply made and then but but definitely have an audience like uh, death race 2000 you know that's with david carradine that's a roger corman film you know there's there's he has a lot of titles in his name and they even say in the documentary about how 
they are known for making movies and the turnaround being really quick. And that's kind of the reason why they went to him. Yeah, they knew he was the go-to guy for for cheap but effective uh, movies. Um, I guess he just, you know, he knew how to stretch his dollar. And this was a movie where they really needed to do that because they didn't have a lot of money. They basically spent what they, I, I believe they said, just a couple of million dollars to uh, to extend the rights by pretending to shoot a movie, essentially. Like, it was just one huge con, and nobody involved actually knew what was happening. They all put their everything into making it work, stretching their dollar. Some of the people even put some of their own money to <laughs> to do promotion and to kind of help extend the their their budget a little bit. I think the the music people spend an extra six thousand of their own money to get the orchestra to make the music for it. Right. And I was like, wow, these these are people that believed in what they were doing, and it kind of shows. I I believe that it, when talking about the actual movie itself. It feels like it has a heart, like, you know, the, the people doing it cared. They were aware it was kind of campy, kind of cheesy, but they were in on it. You know, they they genuinely tried to make the best with what they were given. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's very much true. I mean, this, I, I mean, we haven't really gotten into the actual movie itself yet, but uh, the actors were, I mean, as you can see in the documentary, the actors are all really were really into this movie and for a lot of them this was kind of their their big movie their big break i think the biggest star in the movie at the time was the, was the actor who plays johnny storm he was in uh the boy you could fly and the not quite human like disney franchise uh and a few other things uh uncle buck he was the he was the uh yeah. the 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 waste the the wasteful boyfriend of the oldest daughter you know kind of thing and he, yeah he's yeah he, i mean they even talked about it in the documentary that he didn't even have to audition like they, they he i guess he expressed interest and they gave him the parole and thus it was time for him to start being in the movie right after that like you said he's he the very in the next couple of days he was on set ready to start shooting kind of thing cuz that's how fast this was and and yeah, like the the actor who plays Reed, uh, he's you know he wanted to, he, he was expecting this to kind of be his big break and 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 that's the one thing about it is like a lot of these actors. I mean, I recognize them from stuff now. Uh, I probably I mean I don't know I don't think I would have back then, but uh, Doctor Reed Richards is Alex White, Alex Hyde White, uh, Johnny Storm was Jay Underwood, Susan Storm was Rebecca Staub. And Ben Grimm was Michael Bailey Smith. Uh, so that was, it's, it's all, they're all very much into what they're doing. And that, and that I just wanted to say is that this movie, yeah, it's, it's, it looks cheesy, but that's kind of the fact that they didn't have a lot of money to spend and they didn't uh, have a lot of time to do anything. But for the most part, it's the most almost comic book accurate Fantastic Four that, is that could have been on the screen like it's it's not bad if you were to I, I feel that if you were to take that particular script and give it today's budget maybe punch it up a little bit for the dialogue to be better and you know a couple of concepts to be changed but if you were to do it almost exactly the same but with better special effects that would be a great movie 
You know, as is, you know, in its current state of um, where they kind of abandoned it, you know, and it's only it only looks partially finished in most parts. Mm-hmm. It still works as like a really really good made for TV movie or like a pilot for a TV series. Mm-hmm. I was like, this. I mean, they really made it look, you know, as as good as they could. The cinematography is decent. Um, some of the special effects are definitely very direct-to-video inspired, but um, well, I think one of the things about the special effects is that you know so much of it is is practical. Like you know uh, the the like okay, there's some parts where where you know you see Reed's stretchiness is is cheesy looking, but hell, we just had a 2015 Fantastic Four movie where the stretchiness still looks cheesy. I don't. There's not much you can do about how that looks. But there are other scenes where they do it practically with camera like movement and and some type of weird uh, prosthetics that it doesn't look that bad. I, I mean, I don't think um, the. I think the the animation on the Human Torch when he finally goes full on flame on is pretty bad. But that's just you know, it looks like a cartoon at that point, and you know what else were they really supposed to do? It, it, they talk about in the documentary that the the special effects team, the the visual or the virtual special effects team, or the CGI that they went with, promised them a whole bunch of things that they they could have done for what the money that they were able to pay them, but then they gave them something completely different, and it's just like, uh, you know, they they really felt like they were burned by that company. So <clears throat> I can see that you know they weren't expecting that. And that's unfortunate, but I, I, I really think that this, this that whole movie works a lot better than than probably the last two Fantastic Four movies that we've had. Oh yeah, I was gonna say, like this is by far the best cinematic interpretation of the Fantastic Four and it was never even released in the cinemas. This is like the casting was great. Uh, I it's my favorite version of pretty much every character, especially Doom. I mean, that should go without saying. Like, this is the definitive version of an on-screen Doom that we've ever had. Uh, yeah, and and they weren't afraid to go with the way that he looks in the comic book, which is uh, incredible at this point, as we've seen from the three Fantastic Four movies that we've had actually make it to the screen. Uh, you know, where they keep trying to reinterpret Doom. Like, okay, yeah, you don't need to have the skirt anymore, I guess. You know, I don't really have a problem with it if they did, but, you know, they still... the, the To make him actually wearing this piece of armor because his his face is scarred up, you know, kind of thing, is kind of essential to Doom. Like, it, it, makes, it makes it so you understand that he's so vain and so pompous that... He doesn't want people to see his face, and that it's it's still paying tribute to his ancestry because of the Iron Mask and stuff like that. And yet, they, you know, in the in the modern interpretations of those movies, it's so terrible. They have to make it so that he's like actually growing metal out of his body, kind of thing. It's like, what are you talking about here? Yeah, they always want to try to justify it, like, and that's the thing that bothers me the most with Fox is that Avi Arad is probably the biggest Marvel villain at this point. <laughs> Which is and funny because with... he was the producer for a lot of these 90s <laughs> or these uh, early MCU movies. Right. Him and Tom Rothman or Roth or Rothman. Um, these two guys have been the biggest uh, 
detractors, the, the biggest hindrances, like they just get in their own way when it comes to Marvel movies. You know, like they, these guys were the ones responsible for making Galactus a cloud. Yes. Uh, these are the guys for uh, greenlighting the the script for Wolverine. And the Tom Rothman's particular, uh, Rothman, I forget if it's Roth or Rothman, but um, he was instrumental in denying the Deadpool movie from being made for almost a decade. Like, yeah, I believe, um, I forget his name, Van Wilder, what's his name? <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, yes. Um, wow, couldn't pull that one out of my brain. That's weird. <laughs> um, yeah, I believe he showed interest since as early as 2004 or 2005 in playing Deadpool. Yeah, and, well, one of the, I mean, and just sorry to interrupt you, but like he, it was uh, during Blade Trinity, someone on the set there like gave him a Deadpool comic book and said, you know, you'd be perfect for this if they ever made a movie version of him because just because of his performance in Blade Trinity, which I personally like that movie. I know a lot of people don't, but uh, since then he's been a big vocal like person about being wanting to be Deadpool and putting it on screen. And obviously we finally got it. And it's the best Fox comic book movie we've had so far. Yeah. And it was the one that everybody in the studio side fought the most against yeah. until Ryan Reynolds accidentally leaked the test footage and everybody <laughs> went crazy for it. Yeah. So you, and, you do uh, believe yeah, it was Ryan so, Reynolds that did it? I'm uh, yeah, I, I think it was him. I mean, it makes sense. There's, you know, he'd be the most, probably the biggest one to gain from it uh, for it coming out. But yeah, I, I do find it's funny that it's, there's a lot of, and which also happens in this movie because there's a big mystery of how this particular movie got onto the internet. No one really knows or wants to admit why, how this movie got on the internet because that happens in the documentary. I know we're going off topic from what you were already talking about, but in the documentary, they, you know, there's the only people that are supposedly supposed to have a copy of this movie are, uh, new horizons producers. And yet it still made it on the internet. Yeah. That's going to say like one day it just started popping up in comic book conventions. And, uh, now I have to say, I've, I've been aware of this movie since I want to say 1995. Okay. I remember, uh, you know, back in the days where we would take weekly trips to the video store for the weekend and rent a couple movies. Um, I remember there was this one really bad movie that we rented. Uh, it had something to do with the Amazon, I think. Um, it was just weird. I'm like, oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be at all. But um, there was a trailer for the Fantastic Four on it. And I was like, oh, wow, Fantastic Four. Like, I know these guys. They're the comic book people. <laughs> and, I mean, it looked like a finished trailer. Like, the, the coming soon, you know, and it ends with the thing saying it's clobbering time and the thing looks like the thing and, like, the puppet head moves, you know, pretty well. And I'm like, cool. And I remember going back to the video store and looking for it and asking, and they didn't know what I was talking about. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, huh, well, uh, maybe it just hasn't come out yet or something. <laughs> and it wasn't until several years later when I started going to Comic-Con that I started seeing it there. And that's when I found out it was never officially released. It was uh, 
you know, it just became one of those like underground bootleg things, kind of like the Star Wars Christmas special. Right. Like, <laughs> you're not supposed to be able to see it anymore, but you can if you know where to look. And um, yeah, so I. But you're right. Up until this week, I had not actually seen the movie yet. I'd seen a lot of stuff about it. I've seen reviews from other people online, uh, but this is my first chance to actually sit down and and watch it as a movie. Uh, followed closely by the documentary, and it was a, uh, it was just such a weird experience. Like this is um, almost 20 years, actually a little over 20 years since this was made, and I finally see it. You know, that's funny is that uh, I do remember. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I I, I only remember hearing uh, reviews or people talking about it and stuff like that. And I thought, I remember hearing about them making the movie and then it wasn't until a few years later that I remember a friend of mine asking me like, you know, would, would they ever make a fantastic four movie? Because they, he thought that would be the best comic book movie that they could possibly make. And I was like, you know what? I I believe they're in the, they're making it. And this was like in, I want to say like 97 when I was talking to this, this friend about it. So they had already made this movie. But I, I obviously hadn't got to see it because no one did. But you know, th- I was like, yeah, that would be great, and and all that kind of st- and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, the the fact that it in in ninety four, ninety five, ninety six, whenever it made it onto what that version of the internet was at that time, you know, pre Google, you know, uh, and it still made it to. Uh, people so that they could put it onto a DVD and then uh, and 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 get it, try and sell it for copies at the at, at conventions and stuff. Even though they shouldn't have because it's not their movie to sell, it is still amazing. And the fact that you know it it had some type of following enough for for whoever to to be able to sell it at those conventions uh, is incredible. Wait, so did we just break the law by watching this movie? I mean, we didn't break it. It's <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> I mean, I guess uh, we didn't download it. We're not selling it. It's on it's on YouTube. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. And and I I you know, New Horizons <laughs> and Fox should should suffer the fact that they didn't put, put this movie out and they've made 3 pretty terrible fantastic four i won't i won't say terrible because you know the actual the ones with uh jessica jessica beals and chris evans i like i think they're okay they're not the they're not best they're not they're not the greatest but uh the fact that they made this last one with miles teller they can go to hell all of them because <laughs> that movie was terrible not even not just as a fantastic four movie not as a comic book movie but just as a movie that movie is terrible just, you know, the fact that they wanted people to go and spend their hard-earned money at the movie theater to watch that pile of garbage. And actually, a flaming pile of garbage would be better than to watch that movie. And it, it's... <laughs> at least it provides warmth. It at least provides warmth. And and I, it's not something I couldn't say about that recent Fantastic Four movie. That thing is horrible. All right. I'm not going to get on that anymore. Uh... <laughs> uh I watched. It's funny that you were you talking about you you watched the the movie and then you watched the documentary. I watched the documentary first and then I watched the movie and it, it really, it really I don't know made me appreciate the movie even more while I was watching it after watching the documentary and just seeing all you know how much uh, they put into making this movie 
not knowing that it wasn't ever going to be made, but but do knowing that they didn't have the budget to actually make it a, 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 the best movie that they could have. Yeah, I felt so bad during the documentary after the fact, like you know, watching um, guy playing uh, Mr. Fantastic essentially like on on the point of tears basically saying how much he he really dug the character and how he felt like it was a turning point for him in his career it was like his chance for a big break and uh you know how everybody in the production just got duped basically you know um even like the guy who played dr doom who felt a little bitter about it afterwards but then uh, at the same time, eventually it coming full circle and, you know, it, it, it sort of cemented his place in um, some kind of, uh, like, geek milestone, I suppose, like where he's the first Doctor Doom and, you know, pe- more people know him as that, even though it never got released than for a lot of his other work, which he has a lot of good work, too. Like, he's been in Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remembered him from there, but I didn't re- realize that that was him. Um, and like his own son, like became fascinated with Doctor Doom at like, like a really early age. Yeah, that and cosplays as Doom as yeah, well now. Yeah, that that ver- that when he tells that story, just it it really got to me. He's like, yeah, his son, you know, I guess being able to see the movie, like really got into the fact that his father was was Doctor Doom and and goes off of that version of, of the character. And and one of the biggest gripes that he has with the movie is that he was told that he was going to be able to go and do the ADR, you know, the looping for the, the, all the lines that he did as, when he's wearing the Doom mask. And in the movie, you can see him. He's still trying to act through it. He's He's got the mask on, and he's using his, his hands, like, so maniacally as a tyrant to, to try and v- convey his lines better. And his, a lot of his lines do get muffled because... Uh, he's wearing a mask, and the, the whole point is that you know he does the lines while in the mask, but he's supposed to be able to go back afterwards and and uh, redo them so that it's more clear as to what the words that he's saying. But they never got to do that. And if, a good example of that is to look at uh, the Dark Knight Rises. You know, they filmed the movie with uh, Tom Hardy talking through his mask originally, and it, it just comes out way too muffled. And they uh, they eventually went back and redid redid the ADR, the looping, so that you could understand what it is that he's saying, and that's the performance that we have now, or the one that you see on in the in the version of the movie is the is Tom Hardy being able to be heard. But in this movie you don't see that. They never got around to doing the looping for, for Doctor Doom. So he's still uh, the performance that he gave on screen is the one that he gave on the day. Yeah, and I like the fact that he stole his offering like if anybody is willing to like he'd still do the the ADR for it now yeah just, just to make it sound better it <laughs> like i feel like the movie's not finished yet and i would definitely do it if anybody's willing to you know make that happen and uh, one of the other guys even says too like i feel like this this documentary is partially a backdoor to try to to convince somebody if they still have the original negative to release it so that they can finish it and do it right. And you know what? I would be okay with that. I think that that would be amazing if they were able to do that. They keep saying, like, if we can get a pristine copy, you know, if anybody wants to work their 
their digital effects just to touch it up, you know, give it the the polish it deserves and I don't remember you know, who, maybe sp- I don't remember who it was in the documentary, but they were talking about how I think it was the director, the director of the movie, he's talking about how he even him and another guy tried to come up with a plan of how to get over to New Horizons and kind of just steal the negative and or take it, you know, just so that they could finish the movie or something like that at at some point. And they talk about how there's no real copies of the movie, but like that's literally he even goes on to say about how he has a copy of the movie, but then he says he doesn't have a copy. So that was to me that was kind of confusing. I don't understand if there actually he actually has a copy or not, but you know, there was never any uh official screening for anybody, for any of the cast or crew. Uh there was never uh uh like the fact that they made trailers and put it in front of movies was was always very weird, but you know it. it, it yeah, it was very strange. Oh, what was it in front of Film Threat? That's was that the the cover, the comic book or the magazine cover that they did? Yeah, Film Threat with Chris Gore. Right. Yeah, that was that was another thing. Was that Chris Gore was the on set reporter for most of the production of the movie uh, for Film Threat, and you know reporting every week about or i don't know how often that magazine came out but you know reporting about how the production of this movie went on and you know what was going you know what was being made and stuff like that and and for none of it to ever be seen is just so insane which i mean i understand there's probably there's lots of movies that have never they're probably made and never been seen but uh it's still for a property with that recognizable name is very strange well only if you weren't aware of uh, the fact that it was all just planned from the beginning to never happen because of the the power play to just keep the rights. Which, in the end, um, I believe it was uh, they were talking about it too, like the behind the scenes shady deals that went on. Uh, Fox eventually paid Roger Corman like a million dollars just to give him the rights back. They're like. Hey, we know you're working on it. You're extending it to keep the rights or whatever. So, okay, you're playing hardball. Here's an extra mill. Just let us have the rights already, and 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 you know, take the movie from your off your hands. And Roger yeah. Corman was like, okay. Yeah. What they what they express in the movie is that New Horizons put up seven hundred fifty thousand. Roger Roger Corman put up seven hundred fifty thousand, and together they were making a one point five million dollar movie. And uh, when it finally, you know gets to the negotiating part and of with Fox of what they what they're going to do yeah they they each held out for more money so that they can sell the, you know get the rights to give the rights to Fox but also make a payday and yeah it sounds like they you know they both made a, a little bit of change i mean that's what $250,000 i don't know i don't you know i don't i don't exa- exactly understand how the behind the scenes of uh, or inside baseball as you would of hollywood works but you know, I get. I mean, a payday's a payday, I guess. Yeah, and uh, apparently, if you're not in the know, then you can just get trampled like these guys did, and a whole bunch of wasted time and effort. And one thing I, I do want to talk about is the is the Ben Grimm character. Now, what is his name? Michael. Uh, let me see. Oh no, I already closed that tab. But the the actor who plays Ben Grimm is not the same actor that plays uh, the thing necessarily so when they were making the puppetry for the thing and the the bodysuit they didn't have an actor cast as uh 
Ben Grimm yet. So they just used a stuntman's body as the mole. But they only had enough money to make the one suit. So when it came to the point where they had to, uh, you know, have the thing in the movie, it's this stuntman that is playing the thing inside the costume. Now, they did use the actor who played Ben Grimm to do the voiceover work for the character so that they kept that the same. But the stuntman that they use is a good, what, six to eight inches shorter than the guy that that played Ben Grimm. And it's, yeah, it's very noticeable that it's not the same body shape either. So, uh, the, the, they do a lot of like camera and, and, uh, background for, uh, foreground, uh, camera manipulation so that it makes it look like he's taller in some scenes. But I did find that very funny that they, you know, they couldn't do, they didn't end up having the, enough money to make another suit for the actual actor to wear. Yeah, especially considering how how huge the the actor playing Ben Grimm was, uh, dude was like ripped. He was just like a muscle bound <laughs> big guy, and and it was it was funny in the documentary when he says, and you could take it with a grain of salt. Who knows if Stanley actually said this or not? But he said uh, he says he says Stanley pulled him aside during when they were making this movie and said, you know what? You were basically the vision. You are the embodiment of the vision that I had for Ben Grimm when, when I created the character, like you, you look exactly what, like what I thought he would in the movie or in my head. Uh, and then they very, you know, purposely cut to some footage from a cell phone, you know, of Stanley talking at a, at a San Diego comic-con during the convention uh, a, a panel, I mean, uh, where he talks about how he he disavows that movie altogether, and nothing about it is is good, and nothing about it is is you know what what he had envisioned for the for Fantastic Four, which to me is just you know ludicrous because if you watch the actual movie, it's literally the the origin of the Fantastic Four on screen. Yeah, I mean, just the budget being what it is, it's still very much. Fantastic Four. I mean, you can't confuse it for anything else. Yeah, the only thing, I mean, one of the things that's changed, and which I find very strange, is that they didn't, even though they had the, the rights to the Fantastic Four IP, they don't necessarily have the rights to the Mole Man. So they had to change it to uh, the Jeweler. But he's obviously still very much in the char- characteristics of the Mole Man. Uh, so... Why? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen the Mole Man in anything else other than Fantastic Four comic books. So I don't understand how they would they could possibly say that he's not part of the Fantastic Four like uh, umbrella of of uh, rights. Well, uh, my only theory on something like that is um, you could own the the rights to a character name in a certain media. But when you go to a different one, if someone else has the rights to uh, something called the Mole Man, then you have to work out some legal issues to get permission. Like, for example, the Ghostbusters were not the the first Ghostbusters. Right. There was a TV show in like the late 60s, early 70s called the Ghostbusters. With the gorilla. Yeah. And they had to get special rights to use that name for the movies. But for the cartoons, they didn't have the rights to use the Ghostbusters, which is why they had to call them the real Ghostbusters <laughs> yep. on cartoon. Cause then the, you know, running off of or piggybacking on the popularity of the movie, 
the the one with the gorilla decided, hey, let's cash in on the name now that somebody else brought it back into popularity. And they and made so their they, own cartoon? Yeah. They made I used their to love cartoon. that cartoon. <laughs> you know, I hated that it was called Ghostbusters because, I mean, my first uh, experience with the word Ghostbusters was the movie. But, yeah, it was entertaining. I, th- I thought it was a different take on it. And I'm like, well, maybe these guys are just ripping them off. It wasn't until my adult life that I realized it was kind of the other way around, sort of. Right. But, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really You don't understand things. that, yeah. You know, it's funny, and this is kind of, I mean, this is kind of on topic, but it's definitely not about Fantastic Four, but uh, talking about that whole, like, like, scenario, so, you know the DC comic book property called the Legion of Superheroes, right? Right. So, in the team of the Legion of Superheroes, which has been around for decades, uh, there's a character named the Karate Kid, or Karate Kid, I should say. So, when... Uh, they came out with the movie The Karate Kid in the mid-80s. They had to go to D.C. to get the permission to use the name The Karate Kid. And mm-hmm. uh, and if you're watching The Karate Kid, you'll see that very that very prominent thing in the, uh, in the credits at the end. It says, uh, you know, this is made with the express cooperation of D.C. Comics or something like that. Warner Brothers D.C. Comics. And then... Nowadays, whenever they bring, I mean, the popularity of the Legion of Superheroes has never been stable. Like the comic book itself can never really be sustained anymore. It, it, the seventies and eighties is probably when it was at its height. Uh, whenever they bring the Legion of Superheroes back into comic books and they have to introduce the character of the Karate Kid, there's usually written in there somewhere that someone makes fun of the fact that he got his name from a movie from the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> which is you know just very i just i find it a very funny story oh yeah and i i like those kinds of stories as well where it just shows you the the you know the money and the politics creates for some very interesting situations like that mm-hmm. um okay so you know we haven't really talked too much about the movie itself too, i mean too much i just think because all this uh behind the scenes stuff is so much more fascinating. Uh, we've both talked about how much we enjoyed the movie. Uh, but like, I think one of the, the weirdest things, and I have to point this out. And if, when they, if they, when they eventually remake the fantastic four yet again, uh, they shouldn't include this part. And this is the one part of this, of this script that I think you should cut out. But, uh, you see, you know, college age read and, Ben are staying at a boarding house and it's called, you know, it's uh, Mrs. Storm's boarding house or something like that, which also happens to have, you know, uh, Mrs. Storm's son and daughter living there, which is a young Johnny and Sue. Now at this point, you know, what's funny is that I don't know, you know, did you watch the Buffy the Vampire Slayer series? Yes, I did. Okay. So, you know, who Mercedes McNabb is. She played, uh, what was it? Chastity, charity, something like that on on that series. The blonde girl. She was the one who played young Sue Storm. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, young Sue Storm obviously has a crush on Reed Richards. You know this college age Reed Richards. She's probably what thirteen, fourteen in this movie. And eventually, when we cut to ten years later, when Reed is a little bit older, so he's probably going to be around. 
you know, 32 or something like that. Uh, a four, 24-year-old Sue Storm is still infatuated with Reed Richards, and now, because she's older, you know, Reed is uh, falling in love with her. But it's still, I don't know, to me it still comes off as a little creepy, because, like, he treats her like a sister when he, you see her when she's younger, which is, you know, more appropriate for the age, but to me it just seems weird. Yeah, it was uh, definitely Robin the Cradle. But um, I still the the. <laughs> so you're saying you don't want them to really focus on that in the next iteration? Right. I wouldn't want. I mean, which you know, it, it's it's it is how it kind of was in the comic book because uh, you know Reed was, I, I believe, staying at Doctor Storm's house, and that's how he met a young Sue Storm, and then eventually they. They they grow up older and and they fall in love, but it's still we don't need that part of the movie. We don't need that part in the movie with the insinuations and stuff. I mean, you know, old golden age comic books already have enough with their uh, controversy and having young teen uh, sidekicks and stuff that we don't need to bring that up for people. <laughs> yeah, let's make them a bit more contemporary. And uh, now I might have missed it, but. What was the justification for having Johnny and Sue Storm go along with Ben and uh, Reed there, on their trip? You didn't miss it. There was absolutely none whatsoever. <laughs> they never expressed that the fact that the two of them have any type of scientific or uh, aircraft, you know, experience or anything like that. They liter- like Ben literally says, "Let's take these two along." Because they know, you know, they've been around us for a very long time, and they know things about our experiment that's try- you're trying to do. Like, it, it, it's no reason whatsoever. And that, that was another thing. I was just like, yeah, you know, at least in the, you know, the updated Fantastic Four movie, and I'm talking about the Chris Evans one, you know, they, they put the fact that Chris Evans was also in the Air Force, but he got kicked out because he's a hothead, and, and uh, Sue Storm is, in her own right, a scientist, and... You know, very much so, uh, almost an equal to Reed. So, you know, that, yeah, in this version of the movie, of the story, which also goes again with the comic book, so I can't fault them too much, but they <laughs> they have absolutely no right or reason to be on this spacecraft in the middle of, the, in the middle of outer space. And the mom, the like fact they're... that their mom just like readily is like, yeah, let them go, because he walks. Ben Grimm walks up to the door and he says, "Hey, Mrs. Storm, can can Johnny and Sue go with us into outer space?" And she's like, "Yes, that'd be incredible." It's like, no, it is very dangerous to go into outer space. Uh, you know, at this point, you've already seen, and it's, it's a very bit much a, a national tragedy. But you know, you've seen the Challenger explode on its way. Uh, after its launch, you know, this is, it's it's a very dangerous thing for this to happen, and yet she's v- so excited about it. Like, even though they've had no formal training whatsoever. Okay, well, now I don't feel so confused that <laughs> there was no explanation, because I guess that just... All right. Yeah, that, that, I mean, and it's something to be said, that it does fall in line with the original comics, which means that, you know... It does 
make the case that sometimes the original comics were really just not meant to be taken too seriously. Oh, exactly. And and this is create. And this, these stories were created by a man who's admittedly said he has no no scientific knowledge whatsoever. Stanley has said, "I have no idea what a gamma ray is. I have no idea what how irradiating a spider would make it so that a boy has spider powers." But you know that was the 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 sign of the times. You know, you know, science fiction was all about using science words, but not knowing anything about science. Right. Yeah. However, well, I do have to say this. The, the 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 fact that they kept it in this movie or this particular script does so much more, which is the bigger part of the Fantastic Four story of more than anything else, to adding to the fact that these four people that necessarily have no uh, have no blood relation other than Johnny and Sue are are close knit family that they are close knit group, you know the 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 other three movies that have been made made for the uh, for the big screen really fail in that part of trying to show the, the fact that they're a family union, especially this the 2015 ver- movie, like literally in that version of the movie they all hate each other like even Sue and Johnny hate each other. There's no love whatsoever, but yet by the end of the movie you're supposed to believe that. Oh, they pulled it together because they're a family. Like that's the same thing that happens in fucking Suicide Squad. Like <laughs> none of them really relate to each other or have any mention of of being close knit. Ex- like except for this a couple of times when you're like uh, Deadshot and Harley Quinn kind of share a look, and then all of a sudden, well, we're a family. What? When did you guys become a family? It makes absolutely no sense. So that's what you know. This movie does still do well, even though it makes no sense for. Johnny and Sue to go into space with them. It still shows that the fact that they look at them as family members, and 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 that's the whole point of the Fantastic Four is that these people are family. They would do anything for each other, and it's something that they just can't seem to get right when making these modern day versions of the Fantastic Four on the screen. Well, it's been said that there has been one really excellent version of the Fantastic Four, and that was called The Incredibles. This is very true. That was that was the best version of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> I have to say though, another one that kind of reminds me of the Fantastic Four. I don't know if you remember it. It was a cartoon from the eighties called The Bionic Six. No, I don't know that one at all. Oh uh, yeah, that was also about a super. Well, um, what was it? Um, it was a family of six. I believe that most of the kids were adopted. And they were all given implants and, like, augmentation, a la, like, Inspector Gadget, mm-hmm. but more seriously. So they weren't doing silly things like stretching and helicopter out of their heads or anything. But it was still – you have to check it out. Just just for the intro video of the theme song alone. <laughs> I mean, it's in that same time period when cartoons like Mask and G.I. Joe and Dino Saucers, I mean, all of those things were going on. So this one kind of got lost in the mix. But I think it, it, it has more of a Fantastic Four vibe than the more recent movies did. The only one that's come close so far is, you know, the, the, the 1994 version. And that's really sad that, you know, the one that had the most going against it, it was the closest we've had to, like, a pure vision of the Fantastic Four. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I'll have to at least try and find some clips of the Bionic Six to see uh, what that's like. But yeah, you know, I think I feel like there's lots of attempts to try and 
uh, capitalize on the Fantastic Four storyline. I, I mean, which is funny because uh, what Kate Mara played Sue Storm in this latest uh, version of, of Fantastic Four, she was also in a movie called Zoom with Tim Allen, where they recruit these four uh, kids to be heroes and, and work on their superpowers and uh, you know, she's part of that team and it, it very much so, even though they change around the powers, it's uh, I feel they were trying to capitalize on Fantastic Four there too. Uh, just to wrap up, I want to say that I think this is, you know, definitely watch the documentary. It's, it's very insightful and very, uh, interesting, very interesting watch, especially if you like behind the scenes, Hollywood kind of stuff like that. Uh, but then also if you can, and you can find it on, on YouTube somewhere, you know, watch this, uh, version of the movie, go into it knowing that the, the special effects are cheesy. The dialogue can be cringeworthy at some points, but know that they were doing the best that they could and it's the most comic book accurate I feel uh version of these of this family that's the first Marvel family you know as they've been coined uh, to be put on screen yeah I would say to add to that um yes it's cheesy and super low budget but I prefer the scene at the end of the movie where Reed Richards sticks his hand out the roof of the limousine and it just looks so bad. <laughs> it still looks so much better than when Reed Richards is dancing in Rise of the Silver Surfer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is, that's just bad. It's, it's, you, but you're right. At least the rubber hand that's sticking out through the limousine there's a reason that it looks bad. It's it's a rubber hand, and yeah. <laughs> there's not much more that you can do with it. But at least it's not Reed Richards dancing, and it's it's not it's not Miles Teller being stretched out, you know, in a room or something like that. It, you know, uh, don't I need to stop talking about that movie? All right. <laughs> uh, anything else that's particular that you want to say about this movie? Uh, not in particular about the movie, but uh, more about the documentary. Uh, like I said, I'm a really big fan of behind-the-scenes stuff, drama like this. Uh, I also highly recommend, you mentioned it earlier, The the Death of Superman Lives. Oh, yes, definitely go and check out that movie because uh, – I'm sorry to cut you off. I think, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Tim Burton and, you know, the, all the stuff that you you saw that popped up about that movie before this documentary – makes it look like it was going to be a terrible movie. But then when you hear what some of them, some of those concepts that they were going to do, I would, I'm really fascinated by it. If you watch that documentary. Oh yeah. And just to see like how something is full steam ahead and like, it could just get shut off, you know, and the, the really, the really bizarre take on Clark Kent that Nicholas Cage had going on. It was just like head scratchingly weird. <laughs> um, just some of the stuff that they were talking about with like uh, the death and rebirth of Superman and the and the brainiac in that movie. You know, it's just it all sounds so fascinating. I, I don't agree with Tim Burton I, as the director. I don't agree with Nicolas Cage as the as the actor. But there's a lot of things that sounds like they were going to do really right with that movie. Yeah, I really like the art design for some of it. Including the 
that one suit that they spent so much time and effort to create that is like the kind of like an electrical transparent suit right. thing, right. which they said was only going to be on screen for like a total of maybe five minutes. But yeah, it's supposed it, to be it while was... he's being like reborn and like rejuvenated or whatever, however, healing basically. It's like a healing suit, which, yeah, when we, when, when, like pictures of that suit first came out everybody was just like this is what they're going to do to superman's suit they're going to make him look like this this is terrible it's like when you find out that it's literally only going to be in the movie for maybe five minutes you're just like wow okay i could have been behind this at least that's how i felt yeah same here and also a similar one i recommend is called jodorowsky's dune uh, for those that don't know, uh, you know, we got a version of Dune in the early '80s thanks to David Lynch, which was really a bizarre movie in its own right. Yeah, but it could have been so much weirder if you, <laughs> if you look at this documentary. I mean, it would have just been like art house, like what the hell weird. You know, it would have had music by Pink Floyd. It would have starred. Uh, people like Salvador Dali and Orson Welles. Wow. I mean, it would have just, Mick Jagger would have played like a huge character that I think eventually was played by Sting. Um, it was just bizarre. And the Jodorowsky himself is just one kooky ass director that, um, yeah, it, 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 that's another must watch. Definitely. As uh, Jodorowsky's Dune. Well, there you go. Um, the documentary, uh, Doom, the Untold Story of the Fantastic Four, uh, you can go to the, the website DoomTheMovie.com and you know find out more information. I believe it's supposed to come out in October sometime and more wide release. Uh, I don't know how it's going to be available. It'd probably be straight to DVD, some, something like that. But uh, go to that website and, and, and find out more. Uh, they have a store, they have, uh, you know, you can support the projects, things like that. Uh, other than that, uh, I, you know, I just, I can't talk enough good about both the documentary and the movie. And I will say that's all I have for this week about that. However, I would also like to bring up the fact that one of our own geekly radio network, uh, members, is making a movie, a short film, and I think that uh, if you give it a chance, you should go to its Indiegogo page. Uh, the movie's called Chained. Look, you know, search for that on Indiegogo, and uh, if you can support the project and uh, Richard Owen, who's the writer and director or the co-writer and director, uh, would greatly appreciate it. So if you go to uh, the Indiegogo page or our fan, our uh, Facebook page, which has a link to it. Uh, you can uh, support and share and uh, get the word out about uh, this indie film that one of our very own creators is is making. So, with all that being said, if you want to get a hold of me or talk to me uh, about this subject or any of the subjects that we've talked about today, you can find me on Twitter at, at agent underscore of the underscore bat. You can find John on Twitter as... I'm at Magic Bollocks. And uh, you can also get the rest of geek elite radio on at geek elite radio on Twitter, but then also come back to our Facebook page and talk to us, uh, geek elite radio on Facebook where, you know, most of our conversation happens and the community is rife there with, uh, other opinions and theories of all the things that we geek out about. And then go to our website, geek for archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on the geek elite radio network. 
But until then, this has been the Geeks Watch on the Geek Elite Radio Network saying always remember to geek out. Geek out. We now return you to your regularly scheduled program.